we actually operated on one of these toy monkeys. It it started screaming if you removed its banana. <laughs> and we opened it up and like switched okay. out the speaker to a better one. We ended up mounting a Raspberry Pi camera. <laughs> like we, we drilled it in its eye hole and fit the camera in the eye hole so it could actually look at things. Shoved the Raspberry Pi into its backpack. <laughs> Interesting project. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Beam Radio, your home for a conversation on all things Beam. Today we have with us Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Hi, Alex. We also have Josh Adams. Welcome, Josh. Hello. Hey, Josh. We've got Lars Vickman. Hello. Hi, Lars. We've got Bruce Tate. Welcome, Bruce. Hi, folks. Hey, Bruce. And uh, while we're at it, while we have you, let's get in a word from our fabulous sponsor, Groxio. Bruce, what's new with Groxio? Yeah, we're going to be working on Julia modeling. So that's two pieces. That's creating models. And then we'll start to get into a little bit of machine learning with the Flux framework. Very cool. Very exciting. We also have a uh, somewhat new addition to our hosting panel today. We have the incomparable Steven Nunez. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Steven Nunez. Happy to be joining the the Beam Radioers. Is that we have a name yet? So just a, a quick uh, intro about me. I'm a senior engineer at GitHub. Uh, worked on several production Elixir apps and love the damn thing. Uh, so as as you know, we've been taking a session to introduce each one of our hosts. And today, I have the pleasure of introducing today's uh, host. Sophie De Benedetto. Sophie and I worked together at the Flyer in School, uh, did a ton of Elixir together. I'm really excited to hear what she has to say. Thanks, Stephen. I am super excited to talk to all of our listeners about today's topic, which I'll just drop a little hint. I'm sure nobody will be surprised to hear that I want to talk all about LiveView. But before we get into that, um, I'll just tell you guys a little bit about myself, and I will tell you a little bit about my journey into Elixir and see if y'all have any questions on those topics. So like Steven, I am currently a senior engineer at GitHub. I work on the Insights team. The Insights product um, is actually not in GA yet, so maybe folks haven't heard of it, but basically we provide metrics about engineering team and organization performance, which I think sometimes sounds scary, but I actually think it could be really great and powerful and welcome any questions on that topic. Um, what else? Elixir things. So I'm a maintainer of and contributor to Elixir School. I think you guys may have heard me mention it's a free open source Elixir curriculum. We have great authors and translators all around the world. I definitely recommend checking it out if you're looking for something to contribute to, uh, a lesson, a blog post, whatever. Uh, this seems like so long ago because of everything COVID and we didn't have our event this year, but I'm also a co-organizer of the annual MPEX NYC Elixir Conference, which is a pretty fun event uh, that's a little bit different from your average conference. We are, we're cool. We're in a jazz club in downtown New York City, no big deal. So, you know, when in-person events come online again, hopefully you guys can keep an eye out for that. And uh, what else? Former teacher and engineer, along with Steven at the Flatiron School, as well as currently co-author, along with Bruce Tate, our very own, of Prague Prague's upcoming Programming Live View book. And we'll have plenty to say about that later on, I'm sure. Uh, so a little bit, I guess, about how I got into Elixir. And really, for me, it's kind of tied to how I got into 
programming in the first place. So I have like something of a non-traditional path into the tech industry. I didn't study CS in college. Um, and honestly, for most of my life, I kind of thought of myself as somebody who could really never learn how to computer. Like it was a machine for watching Netflix and, you know, listening to music. And I kind of just thought I could never figure that out. I could never learn that. Uh, but after spending a few years after college doing many different jobs, you know, I was a nanny, I was a house cleaner, I tutored. Uh, I found myself doing some work in WordPress for an organization that I was volunteering with. And it just kind of like wet my appetite a little bit. It got me curious about coding and web development, mostly because WordPress is liable to drive you absolutely nuts. And I kept thinking to myself, there's got to be a better way uh, to do this. So eventually I applied to the Flatiron School, which is a coding boot camp. I got in, I completely fell in love with programming as soon as I started doing it every day. And uh, after I graduated there, I took a job writing curriculum for them and teaching. Loved and still love teaching. Really some of my most rewarding professional experiences were teaching there with Stephen another, and another colleague of ours, uh, Antoine Campbell. We were known as Team Sardine uh, because Stephen was going through one of his many diet phases in which he was eating like a can of sardines for a snack every day, just out of the can, you know, plastic fork, peel open that can, go to town on it. So we were called Team Sardine as a result of that wonderful habit. Um, but it was during my time as a teacher at Flatiron that I first became aware of Elixir. I had a very enthusiastic coworker, um, it was Steven, who was just learning about it and was just super eager and excited to show the other teachers and our students what it can do. And his enthusiasm was just super infectious. I started exploring some of Elixir's kind of flashier abilities, like the things that people lead with when they tell you about Elixir, so concurrency and fault tolerance. Um, but at that point, I was I was kind of a hobbyist, right? I, I was a teacher. I was intrigued by Elixir's eloquence. I wanted to understand more about the functional programming model and what it could offer students. But as a developer, I wasn't really having the kinds of problems that Elixir is best suited to solve. Uh, and since Elixir was still young and the community was pretty new, I had a lot of questions about design patterns, best practices, developer tooling, but I was interested. I was intrigued. It was fun. So it kind of stayed in the back of my mind for a while until my next job um, where I was working for a guy named Troy Denkinger, who's one of the co-founders of MPEX NYC. And we weren't using Elixir at that shop, but we had lots and lots of great use cases for it. We were processing really high volumes of data. Uh, we had this like really complex kind of sidekick worker setup that was super brittle, hard to introspect on. So there were just lots of opportunities to kind of talk and dream about Elixir and what it could really do for us. Um, but, you know, didn't really get to dig into it too much there until I returned to the Flatiron School um, on their engineering team, where like Stephen mentioned earlier, we were able to team up uh, which is a great group of people, honestly, some of the best engineers and just all around humans that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And we developed a few Greenfield Elixir apps that really had use for Elixir's concurrency and fault tolerance in ways that I hadn't experienced. Um, so I, I look back at some of those first apps and I think about how we sort of fell prey to what I think of as the twin dangers for new Elixir developers. And I think these are the two things, right? The first one is everything is a process. Let's just make everything a process. And the other thing is, oh, oh, but make it Elixir. So we definitely shipped some overly complex wannabe object oriented code at first. Uh, but since then, I, I think, I hope I've become a better Elixir developer. And, you know, I really just had so many opportunities to experience how productive Elixir enables your team to be. So whether it's like 
concurrency and fault tolerant, making it easy to build apps that are really robust and reliable, or all of the, I think, increasingly mature tooling around testing, releasing, observability. Uh, I've now just seen several teams ramp up so quickly on Elixir and just start delivering value at what I think is truly an astonishing pace. So I talked a lot all about me. Ask me questions. Sophie, how has your your kind of coming up through the boot camp um, model of learning, how has that impacted your writing? That's a great question. Um, so Bruce knows my writing, of course, through the book that we're collaborating on. But I think that one of the things that uh, I think is true of me and is true of a lot of people that come up through boot camps or coding immersives or whatever you want to call them is this emphasis that we have on communication skills. So for me personally, I have a liberal arts degree. So I did a lot of writing in college. And even for people that maybe didn't go liberal arts degree to coding boot camp, uh, being in a coding boot camp and coming from a background where you didn't know how to code before, it really puts you through kind of a trial by fire of honing your communication skills. So whether that's your written communication skills because you start writing blog posts or you know writing up descriptions of projects that you're doing or just the communication skills that you have to develop in order to answer questions to figure things out because you're extremely confused and trying to learn all of programming in three months, uh, it really forces you to figure out how to ask the right questions, communicate your intent very clearly and um, also collaborate really productively with the people around you because it's just so critical to being successful in what is like a pretty tough experience, right? Three months or four months or six months and then blammo, go get a coding job. So I think that made me a better communicator about code and it made me a better writer in part two, I think for a couple of reasons at Flatiron, I don't know if this is still the case, but when I was a student and for a while we would force our students to write blog posts and it's terrible, right? You don't wanna be forced to write a blog post, but uh, it, does, it does help you. It helps you articulate your thought process. It helps you submit what you're learning. And it also just kind of pushes you out into the community a little bit because you're putting something out there publicly. Um, so through the blog post that I was required to write as a student, I actually got really kind of hooked on technical writing and I found it really rewarding and a really satisfying way to kind of um, take a deeper dive into what I was learning. And it's almost kind of like, it can be kind of like a victory lap too. Like if you build a side project and you figure out something cool, sitting down to write about it um, can feel really good. So I think all of those things have absolutely contributed to me kind of loving technical writing and using technical writing to become a better developer and a better team member as well. My second one is that we're doing a little bit of mentoring work together and Elixir is a tough first language. So how do you think your experience with Flatiron um, has prepared you to teach other developers where Elixir is their first language? That's a really great question. And it's something I've, I've thought about before without having without having an opportunity to teach Elixir. I always kind of wondered what would it be like to teach or work with students whose first programming language was Elixir or something else functional. And it's it's interesting because for these students, actually, it's it seems obvious to them that things are immutable, but it's still not always obvious to me that things are immutable because my first language was Ruby and I was a Rails developer and did a lot of JavaScript. So I actually had like a mind blowing moment with one of uh, our mentoring students last week when 
I asked her to compare two lists. Like, how would you tell if these two lists are the same? So she just said, was like, okay, well, I'll do, you know, list one equal, equal list two. And she expected it to be true because they contain the same elements. And I was like, oh, hint, that's not going to work. I'm like, spoiler alert, it totally did work because Elixir doesn't care that they're not the same object because it has no concepts of objects. It's like, okay, the same things are in this list. It's the same length. It contains the same data points. You're good to go. And then I went on this whole thing where I was trying to describe to her because she asked me, why did you think that wasn't going to work? So I, tried to, I, I came up with this analogy. I was like, okay let's say I have a cupcake tin and I've made a batch of cupcakes and because I'm super nice and I'm making you cupcakes. I take two cupcakes out, frost them, whatever, put them on a plate and I hand them to you. And I ask you, are these the same cupcake? And in my mind, I'm like, no, like they take, they're two different objects. And she's like, well, yeah, they're the same cupcake. They're made out of the same ingredients. They look the same. They're going to taste the same. And yeah, just that, that to me was like so crazy that she was already totally understanding and really just internalizing this idea of immutability and not bogged down by all this object-oriented baggage. And I still very much was uh, kind of dealing with that stale mindset. I think it's indicative that she had shed some ego because identity was not such a strong concept. There you go. I had a question for you. So after you came back to the Flatiron School, you were building stuff there and I'm uh, heavily interested in educating developers. So I'm curious, what kind of things were you building? Um, I certainly have plenty to say on this topic, but since I've already given you guys a lot of background on me, I'm actually going to toss this question over to Steven to maybe share with nice. us a little bit about. Take your pick. I don't know. Registrar, course conductor, all the things. Uh, Do you ever work on the IDE? Um, only when I accidentally broke it when you guys were all at a conference without me. But that's a fun okay, one. Okay, so we'll, we'll, yeah. we won't talk about that one. I mean, we uh, can talk about that. Yeah, we, we built a couple of different apps. The first one we built was an, uh, an IDE for students, uh, which essentially was a distributed Elixir cluster that um, shelled into Docker instances per student. Um, it was cool. We used all the fancy, flashy uh, Elixir stuff. We used distribution, obviously, gen servers and supervisors. We did hot code upgrades, which was really, really awesome to see um, in flight so students wouldn't lose work. Uh, that was sort of like a, a shining moment uh, when we got that working. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, we did a another one for handling our registrar, so collecting payments and registering students for um, for courses. We also built an asynchronous messaging framework in Elixir, so kind of all over the place. Um, anywhere plug we could plug the workshop. Like, plug the workshop. Oh yeah! If you're looking to learn how to do that yourself and build a uh, async messaging uh, framework for your place to bring uh, Greenfield Elixir into your company, come check us out at uh, Code Beam in March. In March, yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but yeah, so Sophie also did some really cool stuff. I didn't work on this, but you did, uh, working with a third-party education. Uh, Ed tech company mm-hmm. uh, building a version of our deployment tool to like give assignments to students, doing it all distributed, I mean, all concurrent, and and uh, did some really complex gen server magic there. Um, but I think the coolest thing, and I, I kind of want to hear uh, toss this back to Sophie a little bit, mm-hmm. is how did you find the experience of converting essentially OO developers to Elixir developers? Right when you worked with, yeah. you know, you worked with, you had an iOS developer who came over to Ruby. You had other bootcamp students that you kind of taught and had join you on the Elixir ride. And I was there, but 
kind of like the break glass solution was call Steven. You were kind of running the show. So what, what was that experience like? First of all, break glass solution call Steven is actually my guiding principle in life. So thank you for giving that a name. Um, it doesn't always work, but <laughs> it's always a good go-to. So yeah, I think um, it was truly nuts, honestly, to see how quickly people were able to ramp up on Elixir and our team was able to deliver things in Elixir. And I think, look, it's due in part to the fact that we were working with some of the smartest and most dedicated and talented and just like fearless people that I've ever met or had the pleasure to know. And a lot of it is because of Elixir. So I think one thing that really struck me again and again is like every time we ran into, okay, we have to do X and we don't know how to do it in Elixir. So we're starting at, you know, square one. Um, my initial thought is like, oh my God, we don't know how to do this thing in Elixir. What's going to happen? How long is this going to take? And that can be kind of stressful. You know, if you're in a tech lead role or an engineering manager role, you take that on yourself and you, you feel like, oh no, what have I done? I have brought these poor innocent lambs into this world where we don't know how to do the thing, but we have to do the thing. What's going to happen? And then like four hours later, they would come back to me and be like, yeah, we figured out how to do the thing. Um, I think one example that comes to mind, although there are so many, is just, you know, working with JOT tokens and in, in Elixir. So um, that was one thing that we kind of started out at zero and had to, you know, you know exactly what you would do in your Rails app, you know exactly what you would do in your React app, but you're really starting from, from scratch with Elixir and time and again, I mean, these people would just figure it out so, so quickly. And I think, of course, that's a testament to them, but I think that's a testament to the Elixir programming language and a testament to the community and the documentation that has really grown up around Elixir. Um, every time we've been stuck on something, every time we didn't know what to do or where to go, we were able very, very quickly to find a solution. And I think because the developer tooling with Elixir is so strong to just consistently dev and iterate on it until we got something working with like a really fast turnaround time. On that note, so do you guys, I'm guessing you guys don't use Elixir in your day job at GitHub or, or not yet? Not yet. Not yet. I, yeah. I'm curious. Our not, listeners not can't to, see me, but I'm slinking down. Not, not to throw shade anywhere. <laughs> what, what are some of the things that you guys miss, you know, from the Elixir ecosystem that you don't have maybe in these other uh, uh, language ecosystems? Again, not to throw shade. We'll keep it simple. Of course. Of course. Um, well, actually, the first one comes to mind is an example that, Stephen, you were talking to me about last week where you were sort of wishing and itching for like a Broadway or a gen stage solution. Yeah, one thing that I, I really miss is just being able to spin up a process. I was working on something um, this week where I just, I needed, it was the perfect case for gen stage. I needed to, you know, uh, I had an external source. I needed to apply back pressure. I needed to have uh, concurrent consumers work on work at the same time. It, it was exactly what I would use gen stage for. And the fact that I couldn't was frustrating. I just need a process. Just let me spin something up. Um, but yeah, Ruby three is introducing their own actor model. So one thing that I'm looking at is seeing if there's a way to build a lot of these primitives. So gen servers and supervisors and you gen stage and tasks, no, tasks and, uh, agents into some library that makes it easy to just reach for them. Um, it's not as robust as it is in, in the, on the beam, but, uh, it's still pretty young. So I'm, I'm hopeful, but I do miss that. By the time this show is out, there will be a Broadway book out in beta. Right now, I, just today, I saw the cover, and there's a new message in it that says, Forward by Jose, um, which is excellent. Really good news. Yeah, that's going to be a good one, I think. Um, and then another answer to your question, Alex, on like what 
do I miss from Elixir? Of course, many things and not to bash on Go because personally, I, I would never do that. But um, one of the things that I miss the most in my day to day, because we have a lot of Go uh, in production on the Insights team is just how nice Elixir makes concurrency and, uh, you know, executing tasks in parallel. And I think coming from Elixir, it truly shocks me how people say that they reach for Go for concurrency. Uh, I won't maybe get into like if I have criticisms on Go's concurrency model and kind of how it works under the hood, but from the pure perspective of like readability, maintainability, and, you know, being able to write code that is eloquent and that you can debug without tearing your hair out, Go's concurrency model, I think, leaves a lot to be desired. It's just like impossible to read and grok what's going on. So, I came into what were like a handful of legacy Go services, which which are fine, they're great. I don't mean to say that they're written poorly or anything, but coming into and trying to read through the, these bits of code that manage concurrency was like so difficult. <laughs> That's really interesting considering Go really is one of the languages that people reach for, for concurrency. And I think it does manage concurrency quite well under the hood to my understanding. But yeah, it it also works at a much lower level, as far as I understand. But I've heard or seen on Twitter, as it is the case, uh, that a certain Jason Warner, I don't know, I think he also works as GitHub, has stated that like Erlang is really great, aside from the syntax. And that sort of would lead one to think of a certain language like Elixir, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. LFE, of course. I have no idea if LFE is nice. But do let us know if uh, if Elixir starts to seep into GitHub as soon as you're allowed. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I can say that there are certainly a number of us that are excited about Elixir at GitHub that want to see it become adopted as what GitHub calls a paved path language. And there is, I think, something coming up in a couple of months that might be kind of like the, uh, I don't want to say Trojan horse, because that sounds really negative, but like the driving force, I guess, the thing that brings Elixir into GitHub, there might be a use case that that gets it out there in one capacity and it can grow from there. So anyway, I mean, that's all a little bit speculative, but there are a few of us that want to see it happen. So hopefully we'll be able to update there you guys. There are dozens of us. Trojan dozens horse only us. sounds negative if you're on the receiving end of the horse. That's very true. I think the, the com more common term is like icebreaker, maybe. Yeah. So one of the things that, that is cool about what you said is that at some level, it doesn't matter what's under the hood. Well, I mean, the stuff that's under the hood is a prerequisite, but you also have to have the abstractions. And I remember when Elixir was young, Jose did a talk called What Elixir is About. And in it, he talked about kind of his beginnings of starting to think about the, the Broadway and Gen Stage. And he talked about some of the abstractions and protocols that, that give you this, this um, interesting dispatch mechanism and behaviors and piping and width and all these abstractions that kind of make that, that, that code flow, right? It's you do this in the boundary, you do this in the core and, um, it really does change the dynamics of the code that you read, even when you're working with pretty young Elixir teams. 
Yeah, and I think that that's what we saw again and again at Flatiron, right? We saw teams that were completely brand new to Elixir and, you know, contending members that were also just super new to programming in general, be able to ramp up on this language really fast, be able to use it to solve the problems that our business had really quickly and be able to shift stuff um, just with incredible speed. And that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. That's how you sell a language. Yeah, I think one of the nice things is in order to write like really readable and easy to maintain uh, Elixir, you just need to find a good way to break up your modules and your functions. Pretty simple. Like all you have to do is that and, and you're on the right path versus like when you're in an OO language, you have to be careful if you're doing you know, your data hiding properly. Are you doing any like pass by reference and are your functions stomping on any of those references kind of inadvertently? And there's a lot more gotchas. And so I find it's, uh, it's pretty easy to write readable and well-maintained Elixir, as opposed to having to learn a bunch of OO patterns and implement them properly in order to have readable and maintainable OO. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think uh, on this note of some of the things we love about Elixir being, you know, excellent abstractions and really solid design, that's also something that I think makes Live View really shine, which brings us to our topic today, uh, which is Live View, which I would like to say is the future of single page app development. That's right, I've said it. And I did want to kind of like to shout out Bruce at this point because so much of what I've come to learn about Live View and what I think its impact is going to be on the Elixir community and web development in general has come from working with Bruce on this book. And so I just wanted to give credit where credit is due. And I'm Certainly looking forward to any thoughts you have to share on this topic, but getting into the topic a little bit, um, I don't just want to talk about LiveView from a technical perspective, but I really do want to make this claim, which I think is bold. LiveView is going to change the way that we develop single page apps that we develop for the web period. And um, I think it's going to do that because now we get to stay as developers fully focused on the server on the back end. So this means that it's going to be easier to write, test, deploy, and observe single page apps. And that means that teams, our teams are going to be able to build apps that are super interactive, that are stable, that ship faster than pretty much anything you've seen before when you're dealing with kind of splitting things up between the client and the server. And just like we were saying, you know, that Elixir lets teams be really productive. Live view enabling teams to be super productive at web development, at single page app, at interactivity is a really big deal. So I don't mean to say that live view is going to like be the right fit for every single web app you're ever going to need. Like it's not going to be the right fit for a really complex in browser game, for example. Um, although it's actually good enough for a couple of fun games, but I think to meet the interactive needs of the everyday web app, because everyday web apps pretty much all want interactivity in 2021 live view is really, it's the perfect fit. I, I think that that's a great introduction. And um, I did a talk, uh, gosh, many years ago um, at as the keynote to one of the early Elixir comps back when they were in um, Austin, Texas. It was called The Pendulum. And the premise is that every, every certain block of time, programming languages, you know, kind of um, rise and fall. And every there's a bigger block of time in programming paradigms rise and fall. And the programming paradigms are not just around languages like object-oriented or, or functional programming. They're also this idea of, do you have something that's more batch-focused, like we package up everything for a request, and then we send down a response. And then that kind of shifted to like a client-server focus, and that kind of shifted back up to a batch focus on the web, where um, we had to basically 
give our application this lobotomy, right? Make them forget um, so that every individual request would be the same. And then that kind of shifted back with the idea that, um, you know, if, if you were Google, you could make these beautiful applications like Maps and Gmail that, that had all this data flying back and forth. But you did that on the strength of this massive engineering team and you could just throw bodies at the problem until it was beautiful. But individuals were left out of this idea of a, a single page app and we tried to patch it all these different ways. But with LiveView, we're doing it by pushing this conversation back into the infrastructure, just as we did when we went from client server into the request response web. And I think that that's going to lead to just an incredibly powerful um, way of thinking where, yeah, it's not about, it's not all about going from two languages in JavaScript and Elixir to one, but that's part of it. It's not all about um, all these tiny little tasks that you have to do to make each individual task work, but it's part of it. It's not about um, making, putting your brain in one one place, but that's a huge part of it, right? It's it's all of these things. And to your point, Sophie, I think you're saying it will change. I think it could be argued that it already has, because you, like, shortly after Live View became a thing, uh, I believe his name is Caleb Porcio. Um, of he's in the Laravel community, uh, created Livewire, which is basically um, a port of the concept Sounds of LiveView. really familiar, yeah. Hmm. For PHP and Laravel. Right, and, and don't we have a Rails flavor of that too? Yeah, Hotwire. Hotwire, that's right. So you, I, I think you can fairly clearly trace like LiveView, Livewire, <laughs> Hotwire. Yeah. And like Hotwire is a Basecamp, Rails, uh, DHH supported uh, hype machine, I imagine, if that still happens in Rails land. Uh, I think this is a general direction in which web development wants to go just to manage the complexity of front-ends. Yeah, I uh, think that's absolutely right. Um, I love that you pointed out the ways in which it's kind of already pushing the wider. Hey.com. Uh, yeah, well, hey, there you go. Ha, pun, that wasn't even on purpose. Um, yeah, the ways it's already pushing the wider community and influencing it. And I think, um, I don't know, I really don't know a lot about LiveWire or HotWire. Um, but I think what makes LiveView stand out and what's going to continue to make it stand out is the fact that it's built on Elixir. So what does that mean? That means that your LiveView is a process. It's a gen server under the hood. That means that if you need to communicate with other parts of your application, of your distributed application, you get to do that pretty much for free. You get to leverage PubSub. You get to leverage Presence. Um, it's fault tolerant, right? If there's an error and the process crashes, a new one comes back up. So I think that there's a lot of ways that LiveView is going to really continue to stand out spectacularly. And that's, that is it's, it exactly, it's in a process and there's, there's two things that make that so important, right? So the first one is that, that Elixir can have so many processes at once and that they're all isolated and degradation in one doesn't take the whole system down. And the second thing is that there's a consistency of, of response that's been kind of cultivated in this lab of, of the phone switch, right? And, and so 
everything has to respond quickly. So if you look at the standard deviation between the slowest response and the fastest response for Elixir, it's many more times tighter than it is in, in other languages. Yeah, we definitely have the, you know, the virtual machine, the beam to thank for this. Um, like we're, we're building on these, these phenomenal foundations and I think taking them to places where they haven't been taken before in the, in the beam ecosystem. And uh, I think like time and time again, we just realize, uh, you know, how amazing this runtime is and how the, the, the programming models uh, really, really make these problems easy to solve. And yeah, to, to that uh, point, Bruce, like the standard deviation. So one person can't take down the entire server for everybody else just because they're doing something uh, long running or computationally expensive. It, I mean, the the virtual machine really makes these problems a lot more uh, you know, bite-sized as opposed to these huge monstrous efforts that we have to solve. Yeah, I think that the community could do a better job at sort of selling that. I mean, here here's what I'm thinking. Uh, I think Hotwire is cool. I think all these other sort of like clones are cool on the surface. But the second you start thinking about, you know, how do you handle node failure? Like the fact that there are primitives built into the beam that will let you handle a server lighting on fire, like that's a big deal. And I think that that's one thing that we're not really doing a great job at selling. The idea of like, yeah, you know, whatever, morph DOM is really fast and the, the, the JSON we send down is super tiny and we sort of like flip bits and it's magic and we can integrate with JavaScript. Cool. But check this out. And then you light a server on fire. Don't try this at home. But I think that that's something that I think we need to talk more about that. It's like, yeah, you can change DOM elements. Congratulations. But can you do this? Yeah. And it, be it becomes so much more important when when you go from a model where there's like each user might have a couple of dozen interactions with the site on a typical visit and that explodes to hundreds and hundreds of interactions. And so you go from a place where maybe there's some failure for one every hundred users to it's likely that every user will experience a failure if the model isn't right. I wanted supervision trees, but I got system D. Brilliant. And the other beautiful thing is with, uh, with how introspectable the, the, the virtual machine is and the phenomenal tooling that we have, i.e. telemetry, uh, you can keep an eye on all these things pretty easily. Uh, like uh, uh, LiveView itself has tons and tons of telemetry events that it emits for everything that's going on. So you can keep a really, really co uh, close eye on how long are my handle events taking? How long is my init taking? And if you know if you do have problems, you know you, you can you can kind of peek in and see what's going on, and uh, you know that that's that's super powerful as well. And yeah, if think, you need um, a circuit breaker, like this is a thing that people that build stuff on the beam have in spades, and you can just use one and be confident that someone on Erlang questions has already nailed down all the problems it has. So Stephen, what kind of budget are we talking about for this uh, setting a server on fire talk to actually happen? I actually want to do this now. Maybe we can, we can do it with Raspberry Pi, smash it with a sledgehammer. You know, do it Gallagher style, kind of cover the whole thing up. And let's talk. I would totally go to that Code Beam V talk. That's a keynote. Why can is the keynote it? called Hammer Time? <laughs> can you see Stephen passing out like plastic bags to the front row? I mean, I'm only going to this talk if I get my own hammer. To your point, Stephen. I've really been curious, like I expect to see Node.js 
show up with one of these solutions as well or maybe it already has one maybe it has five and that's why i never heard of one uh, but for hot wire and live wire i'm sure they do a decent enough job i'm sure thought has been put into doing it well and like running web sockets that's something most runtimes can manage but i've also done like heavy concurrency on in python and that's basically the same as doing it in rails and with some green threading it's the same as doing it in node but slower uh, and it just won't work the same way that the beam does and i think if people start building on this idea uh, and pushing it further and further some people will start scratching their heads about like why is this working so much better in elixir because i believe with certainty that it will work much better in elixir because we have the foundation that our runtime provides that is just meant for massive concurrency and this soft real time this low latency um, and i don't think <laughs> i know how challenging that can be in other runtimes and i know that's the central core to any no fast node.js app like application like rush to io because we do not want to use the processor which is which is pretty stunning when you think about it because most of the foundations that were laid to make elixir and you know from from erlang so good at this go all the way back to the same things that made it bit big for working on phone switches on smaller computers and making making that not just work but work under extreme extreme duress right under under extreme loads with possible failures with embedded hardware with and you know when things break we have this whole ecosystem that just lets lets this cascading failure happen and just snap back up again it's it's so wonderful yeah, and I think that's why LiveView has the potential to be so revolutionary because it's not just an abstraction around WebSockets, right? That exists. Like, I haven't worked with Hotwire, but back in the day when Action Cable was new, it's it's an abstraction around WebSockets, and it's a pretty good one. It it allows you to bring interactivity to your web app in a way that you know you can grok and maintain and build on. And I'm sure the same is true of others of these frameworks that have come out, but. LiveView doesn't just bring you an abstraction around WebSockets. It brings all of the awesome power of Elixir and the Beam to web development in a way that allows you to, yes, build interactive websites, but that scale that are reliable, that are massively powerful, and that are crazily fault tolerant. Like, you know, like we said, you're not going to bring down everything with like one really expensive computation. Um, and that's something that hasn't existed yet. Phoenix has come close, absolutely, with just the fact that it exists and of course Phoenix channels, but something that allows you to kind of marry like interactive web development with the power of Elixir and in a way that allows teams to be really productive, to build quickly, to ship quickly, um, you know, to observe what they've shipped, to remediate bugs quickly. Like that's just, it's gonna be groundbreaking. It is gonna be groundbreaking. And I think that one of the next steps for us is to start talking about live view in in ways that people can consume in, in ways that we can that we we provide a um, a generous viable on-ramp so that maybe you don't need to know everything about otp maybe you need mm -hmm. to know this kind of framework that you start by creating something with a mount and then you provide these handlers that um, 
take take the thing that you created, the data that you created, and let people change it in some small way, and then you let people render this, and and so that's just this constructor, reducer, converter, over and over and over. So not only do we have the right abstractions, we also have all this all this stuff that sits that sits underneath, and it's it's the the two together that make things so compelling and fantastic. Yeah, and I think that that pattern that really I've come to learn from you, Bruce, this idea of like construct, reduce, convert. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why I've really come to see LiveView as as a framework that I personally can be very productive in. Because I remember when LiveView first came out, like, I don't know, was it a year and a half, two years ago? Um, we actually used it at the Flatiron School and we put some LiveView features into production that, I don't know, maybe they're still there, I hope so. And we were able to move pretty quickly and we were able to get stuff working and it was felt really awesome, right? Being able to build these interactive features and especially being able to link it up with PubSub and kind of have updates happen on the page that reflect things that are happening, you know, elsewhere in the application. But I think we really struggled a lot with the design of our actual live view code. And I ended up feeling like we were writing, it reminded me of like the Rails fat controllers code smell. We had fat live views. We just had lots and lots of stuff going on in live view. We didn't really know where to put code that was responsible for changing state, where to put code that was responsible for, you know, enacting changes on the back end, where to put code that was responsible for, you know, the design of the page and how it looked and, and those kind of niceties. But understanding a little bit better this pattern, core versus boundary, um, in terms of organizing where code lives in your overall application and understanding this pattern of construct, reduce, convert uh, as a place to guide where you put code within an individual live view, uh, I think has has made me feel like I'm now writing live view applications that are like so clean and just like a pleasure to look at. You look at these live views and they have those nice skinny margins. And of course, we love that. Um, and you'll get all that and more in our upcoming book. Yeah, that's that's so much fun. And that's that's really what, what it comes down to. Uh, folks, when you see the the code that Sophie is writing for this book, I I am sitting back and saying, man, I wish I could do that. Um, but well, that's, I learned that's... it from you. <laughs> That's what a band is supposed to be, right? It's like the lead the lead singer says, I wish I could play guitar like that. The lead guitarist says, man, I wish I could sing like that, drum like that. And the lead drummer says, I wish I could do any of that other stuff. But it sounds great together, right? But, um, but this idea that you can have these tiny abstractions and not just, you know, this goes in the core, this goes in the boundary, but even on the page, when you say, hey, I could code this in one way and I could get a little bit of reuse, but I could make a reducer over the socket and I could get more reuse. And if I make my handler skinny, there's all this these little bits of practical advice that the Elixir community is just really soaking in and hungry for right now. It just it makes it so fun to teach and um, and so fun to kind of use because when you teach these these tiny bits of code organization great things happen and and students are much more successful and that's that's what it's all about it's all modules and functions all the way down so with our last few minutes before we kind of conclude and wrap up i do want to kind of plant a seed for what i hope will make a future future show topic for us i have heard i'm not sure where i heard this i have heard that there's a new stack in town the pedal stack. And I personally haven't really done anything at all with LiveView and Tailwind CSS or Alpine JS, but I know we have some folks on the panel today that have done a little bit of work. So I don't know if anybody has any initial thoughts to share, and then maybe we'll spin this up to a future conversation. Yeah, so I certainly have 
started poking my head into that stack. And I wouldn't say like, I'm not married to the idea of Tailwind and Alpine in that stack yet, uh, because I haven't played with them enough to be to be certain about their place. But people that have, have strongly recommended them. And I, I'm happy to take them at their word. And I, for me, so far, it makes sense because when we shift so much of the front end to the back end uh, and wrap it up in our live views and our live templates, having these slightly less, uh, maybe slightly less clean approaches to CSS and JavaScript that Tailwind and Alpine propose, uh, where you actually put most of the code straight into your template sort of means that you encapsulate the CSS and the JavaScript along with your template, which I think makes for a powerful and very effective combination. If not, maybe the most visually pleasing, like not the prettiest classes. Uh, but I, from my early experimentation with Pedal, it's, uh, it feels like a really good path forward. Uh, I also know Alex has started to, uh, maybe I should say fight with his stack. I could add a couple of things there. So to expand on your point there, Lars, um, I, I think maybe the reason that Tailwind is becoming so popular with LiveView is that one of the benefits of using, you know, Vue, Angular, React was the fact that you got these components, like usually like these giant component libraries that come along with the frameworks. So like if you use, um, uh, like Vue, there's like uh, Element UI, and uh, there's a material one I can't remember the name of it. But either way, you had these you know giant collections of components, and you could make these nice-looking sites pretty effortlessly. Albeit, you get the overhead of large JS bundles and stuff. I'm curious to see how Surface evolves over time because that might become like our go-to component library for Live View. But uh, for now you can kind of do the same thing with Tailwind where you attach a bunch of classes together. If you want to extract those out into their own class via apply and make it a little bit more readable, you have that option available to you. But uh, you can still get to the point you were before with these Vue, Angular, React component libraries with just a couple of classes and you're well on your way. I think I'm going to have to edit the pedal stack though to petals with an S at the end because uh, there's this Alpine library called Spruce, which effectively takes the state management out of the DOM elements. Uh, because what Lars was hinting at was that I was fighting with, uh, I was fighting with forms, because apparently in uh, Morph DOM, forms are treated differently than other HTML elements. And so it won't patch it like it does other HTML elements. It'll actually just overwrite the whole thing. And so I was using, uh, uh, the Alpine JS annotations on the form element and the whole thing was getting stomped and I was losing state and it took forever to figure out that uh, that was actually happening. And so I actually extracted that state out into Spruce. And um, now I don't have uh, like my X data in my uh, forms or my HTML and it's it's going pretty nice. So it might be, it might be petals stacked for me, not just one petal, petals, but we'll, uh, we'll see. Oh, we have a pun coming up. Go right ahead. Yeah. I don't know about y'all, but I'm excited to push the pedal to the metal. Okay, I'll go right now. Thank you. That was great. But Alex, it sounds like that might make a great blog post, maybe, that kind of got you on that pain point that you experienced. Um, or a great topic, as we could dig into this more in the future. But I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you guys so much for letting me, uh, you know, ramble on a little bit about 
things that I care about and where I'm coming from. It was wonderful to chat with you all. And of course, thank you as always to our awesome sponsor, Graxio. Check them out. They are career fuel for programmers. All right. See you guys next time on Beam Radio.